Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist based in Los Angeles, specializing in trauma and addiction. Welcome to our podcast, which is called It's Not About the Sex, also the name of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term, sustainable recovery. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical tools toward living a deeply connected life. Let's get started. David Fawcett, PhD, LCSW, is a social worker and sex therapist in Fort Lauderdale, specializing in gay men's health. He is the author of Lust, Men, and Meth, A Gay Man's Guide to Sex and Recovery, which explores the intersection of gay men, drug use, and high-risk sexual behavior. The book was named 2016 Best Nonfiction Literature by Paws Magazine. He's also the vice president for clinical programming at Seeking Integrity, which develops and operates treatment programs for fused drug and sex behaviors, also known as chemsex and intimacy disorders. Seeking Integrity currently has a program in Los Angeles and will be opening another program in Thailand. He frequently presents workshops on LGBT health, addiction, HIV, and co-occurring disorders both in the US and internationally. David is a regular contributor to thebody.com and thebodypro.com, writing about HIV, mental health, and substance abuse. And he has been published in Huffington Post, Positively Aware, and other journals. And I'm very pleased to be welcoming David Fawcett to our podcast today. And David will be focusing on chemsex recovery, healing sex and intimacy. So welcome, David. It's so great to have you here today. Thanks, Andrew. I'm really pleased to be able to join you. You know, it's not often that we talk about chemsex. And just for our listening audience, can you share with us what chemsex really refers to, what that means? Sure. You know, chemsex is a relatively new term, which actually came out of the UK, but it describes the combination, the intentional combination of of certain kinds of drugs uh, along with sexual behavior as a way to kind of enhance each. And so typically with chemsex, we'll see um, someone using usually an amphetamine such as cocaine or methamphetamine along with sexual behavior. And, And the drugs have physiological impact on sexual desire and uh, behavior and other things. And over time, those two behaviors become kind of fused into one, almost a third thing. It's, it's not quite sex addiction, it's not quite drug addiction, it's this combination of the two. And does it have to be those specific drugs that you mentioned, or can it be any drug at all? Well, actually, this is a, an item of some controversy. Uh, the, the term chemsex did derive from the gay community in London and uh, the people that coined the term are quite um, fierce about describing chemsex as a gay phenomenon, relating it to the unique kind of cultural um, consequences of growing up gay and some of the shame and stigma that goes with that. And, and that's certainly very relevant. Uh, we do see, though, that 
or I see that the chem, what we call chemsex, uh, occurs, and you can call it fused drug and sex behavior or paired drug and sex behavior, but it certainly occurs in other populations as well. For example, uh, a heterosexual man who uses cocaine and has sex with prostitutes. Or we can see also sometimes people use this interplay between drugs and sex where someone might um, only have a certain kind of sex when they have drug use or they might be inhibited to the point where they can't function unless they have drug use. All of those represent different kind of constellations of this interplay between drugs and sex. So, question. You say that this came out of London. Was there a particular originator or or someone who developed this idea of, of chemsex based on, on the London sub, subculture? Um, yes, basically. And, and this is, you know, the, this phenomenon, especially in the gay community, has been around for a long time, but it's been epidemic probably for the last 20 years, which sounds kind of crazy, but uh, because of the way the drug is being imported, the way the purification processes and so on, it just keeps growing. And uh, in every major area where there's gay people. And in London, uh, this brilliant guy named David Stewart, who works at a National Health Service clinic called 56 Dean Street. It's a clinic in Soho that um, works with gay men, uh, both in terms of sexual health, mental health, substance use, and they, they provide all those services in one place. And he's done some really great work with community awareness and, and so on. But that's, that's where the term came from. But it, it just resonated around the globe because mm-hmm. so many of us are seeing that very same behavior in our own backyard. But right. it's a nice, uh, kind of great shorthand term to describe the phenomenon. Okay. So for those of us who are a little bit older, there was a time, let's say back in the 80s, when a lot of gay men would use poppers with their sexual behaviors for various reasons, for some kind of enhancement. And it sounds like it's been around a while. It's been around for decades, what you're describing, but that it's getting more attention now. Is that right? Yeah, you're absolutely right that... um Poppers have been around forever. I think gay men, well, the LGBTQ community as a whole uses more substances than the general population by far. Uh, so there's drugs are no stranger to the community. Uh, what's different, I think, now and what's getting people's attention is the rise of these kind of super drugs, this, the methamphetamine mm. that we get on the street today, or actually get it by FedEx, as I know people normally get it from the dealer. Um, but that FedEx is not, you know, to put a light spin on it. Not, not your, not your grandfather's meth. You know, it's it's uh, mm-hmm. it's much stronger, and much more dangerous. So I think it's um, that's really explaining some of the escalation, not only in awareness but of actual behavior. It's really epidemic on the street. Right. So there's been an evolution in the strength of different types of of drugs. I guess it's parallel to marijuana which wasn't quite as powerful in the 70s and 80s and now is is so so strong and and has such potency and right. and so one thing i was curious about along those lines is so what what actually happens in the brain when sex is combined with drugs like stimulants and if you can do your best to talk to the eighth grader in me 
and and explain <laughs> how it works in the brain that would be really helpful sure so um all amphetamines but meth particularly um work in a part of the, a very old part of the brain called the limbic system or the, the reward center which basically was designed um to help us survive as a species mm -hmm. by rewarding us with this little feel-good neurotransmitter called dopamine when we do things that help us survive. For example, um, collaborating when we are in a in family units, when we do something that uh, makes us feel good, when we have great food, uh, and all of these things are called natural, natural rewards because they're natural things we do in the course of our lives that give us these little bursts of dopamine that makes us feel good and keep us wanting to do more of it. And by the way, the, the highest natural reward for any human is an orgasm, which is um, about 200 relative units of dopamine. But so that that's kind of natural reward. What these drugs do is go into that same system and kind of hijack the circuitry, and and to the point where uh, normal natural rewards no longer are sufficient for arousal or for even to feel good. Uh, so, for example, if, if an orgasm is 200 units of dopamine, cocaine is about 300, methamphetamine is about 1,300. It's four times the amount of the, the rush of dopamine from meth. So, so when people do these activities, there's this torrent of dopamine, which causes this great uh, period of euphoria, and then this terrible depression that follows it. Um, I will say that we're seeing this not only with drug behaviors, but if you have sex addiction or porn addiction, it operates in a very similar manner in the brain. And those two often go together. So the, the third element here, besides some the communities and the drugs I, I didn't mention yet, are apps. So these things on the phone, like Grindr and Scruff, that first of all, the phone have made pornography so easy, but these apps uh, add a whole other dimension that kind of um, is almost hardwired into our brain to uh, to get people excited and get people hooked into looking and wanting. Um, that holds dopamine really is all about wanting and desire. Mm -hmm. And so that's what these drugs do. They kind of take the system that we were we have to help us survive and kind of hijack it to the point where unless something is really super stimulating, mm -hmm. uh, like a methamphetamine experience or like a lot of porn or um, porn and drugs, people just aren't going to be able to get aroused or even function. Mm -hmm. So not only are you talking about immediate gratification, but you're talking about multiple forms of immediate gratification that are happening simultaneously. That's correct. So dopamine really works on the desire system as opposed to, um, I guess it would be more endorphins that kind of give that satiation feeling. So when people's desire gets so stoked up, um, they just get on this, this hunt. So the sexual desire just skyrockets. Mm -hmm. So people get really horny. People want to mm -hmm. have sex. They become very indiscriminate. Uh, there's a lot of high-risk sex that goes with this, which is what makes it so dangerous. Uh, and about 50% of people who engage in chemsex in the gay community uh, are or will be HIV positive. So the, these epidemics have kind of merged um, into, into various forms and kind of grown together. Uh, but I did want to say, because you, you, there's different stages here. Yes, you're correct. There's the sort of immediate uh, high, and then there's this 
ongoing uh, kind of change in the arousal template and what people find attractive that, that keeps them coming back, if mm-hmm. you will. Right. And, and I hear that there's the high-risk um, behaviors that really put people at risk for everything from disease to arrest to possibly loss of jobs, relationships, et cetera. And, and that can be progressive. Yeah. You know, uh, methamphetamine, uh, people begin to lose empathy and mm. start to objectify. Mm-hmm. So th- that happens with in sex and sexual partners. People, a lot of the guys I work with as clients talk about um, being connected, this connection, this longing for connection. And on meth, they kind of get it, but I, I call it kind of connection with an air quote. It, it feels like they're in contact, but mm-hmm. uh, it's not really something that we would call intimate or authentic, or mm-hmm. there's certainly no vulnerability in a meth user having sex. It, it, it's all um, kind of a more animalistic yeah. uh, sexual act itself. Right, so it's like, so art- not intimate. like artificial contact, like pseudo-contact. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So- and, and I think in, in communities where people are so hungry for that, and the gay yeah. community is that, there's such loneliness that they're really vulnerable. Of course. So there's really underneath it all a hunger for deeper contact, but just not knowing well, how to get it. And, and chemsex is that works in a way as part of that attempt, a misfired attempt, I, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. And I think also with these populations, there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of stigma. Yeah. Uh, and I think that has compounded this as well. I'll mention one other thing that is a disturbing trend that we're seeing in, in North America, and that is that this whole uh, chemsex phenomenon in the gay community, gay by trans community, has moved into the ethnic and racial minority community. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of black and Latinx young gay men who are uh, using chemsex. And sometimes there's a lot of interplay and power play between uh, older white guys with money and younger uh, minority guys who, who trade sex, basically. And then there's this, these dynamics that go on. Um, but the, the disturbing thing there is that uh, this is really merged with the HIV epidemic in most communities, which are mm-hmm. really the last in, in the United States. The young black and Latin men, are, gay men, are the populations that where the HIV epidemic is still kind of out of control. And I think one of the factors there is that there is this chemsex phenomenon in those communities as well. Yeah, when I hear that, it, it startles me because I think back at all of the education and all of the advances that that we've made with different types of treatments for HIV and here's this whole new generation that is is doing it again in 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 the sense that they don't know how to uh, take care of themselves and protect themselves and and my guess and tell me more about this David is that the chem part of chem sex the fact that they're using all of these very potent drugs it takes them so far away from themselves that they, they don't use the condoms or they don't know how to have safer sex or there's a, a, a loss of uh, boundaries that is quite out of control, like you said. No, I think you're, you're exactly right, Andrew. Uh, some of us, and I'm, I'm a survivor of the whole AIDS epidemic, the whole crisis, uh, and I think 
there's an irony that a lot of us feel that I've seen so many gay men who survived HIV and they're succumbing to methamphetamine. You know, there's, it's, it's really a kind of horrendous phenomenon going on. But but you're exactly right. The, the people that are um, speaking this connection and they have the knowledge, I mean, they're aware of condoms and hopefully now they're aware of PrEP and U equals U, mm-hmm. but... Uh, I don't know if anybody who's ever participated in a chemsex who used a condom, it's just not in the in the cards. So the younger gay men that I have worked with, uh, I found often have this kind of attitude of inevitability about becoming HIV positive. And so a lot of them uh, kind of uh, do go on PrEP, some don't always, but a lot of them just kind of assume HIV is something that's manageable and uh, are rather careless about it. And methamphetamine really just... Uh, aggravates that whole situation. And a lot of the, the guys feel, I think, they're going to get positive anyway. They uh, want to just get it over with and get that anxiety out of the way. That's kind of the attitude. Right. So moving to a more practical question, I'm wondering if you could share some practical tips that you would either share with those who might be listening who are troubled with chemsex or have family members dealing with chemsex, or, or even clinicians who are brand new to understanding chemsex, what would be some practical tips you can offer them? Sure. So one of the phenomena here is that these, when drugs and sex fuse or pair, um, when you give up one, the other usually goes with it. So if I have a meth user who's been using meth for sex, he gets clean, goes to NA or Crystal Meth Anonymous, or somehow gets to a program and gets clean, often, almost always, his sexual desire goes right with it. It's been paired. So I have guys who are in recovery, drug-free, for a week, a month, three months, six months, no sexual desire, nothing coming back, because their reward system that I spoke of has been so reset to such a high level that nothing they're encountering, short of being intoxicated, is anywhere near stimulating enough to be aroused. And so that's a huge problem. So one of the things I do is, when they first get sober or clean, to say, okay, let's just accept um, that we can have uh, just put sex on the shelf and not worry about it. And then later, as we start to reincorporate it, it's, it's about managing a lot of cues. So everything gets gets paired. And so we, we find people actually using, um, they may not be drug using drugs at all, but they're using this kind of porn that involves chemsex visuals. So they're kind of keeping the, the, that uh, pathway al- alive in their arousal template, uh, even though they're not using the drug. And they're wondering why they're not moving back toward kind of more uh, arousal from their partner or from humans uh, than, than they have. We find that people try to often substitute behaviors to kind of, it's that bargaining phase, I guess, of addiction where you kind of um, try to still have the the meth sex, if you will, but without the meth or the consequences. Uh, we find people wanting to uh, negotiate about if they, if meth brought them down, uh, a lot of guys will say, well, why can't I have a beer with my, my friends at the gay bar? That's our social town square. And, you know, a beer will oftentimes reduce the uh, inhibition that people have for not using drugs. So there's a lot of tips like that. Well, the other thing I'll mention is with amphetamines, they increase what we call visual memory, which means people get highly sensitized to visual imagery. 
And so uh, porn, that introduces a whole problem for pornography, but any kind of visual imagery. So if people have been going down a street uh, to a dealer or having sex in a certain part of town, or uh, it, it gets so paired that even sometimes if people walk into a 12-step meeting and see you know, sexually attractive guys, they're going to get a drug craving. So all those things need to be kind of acknowledged and, and uh, extinguished or, or kind of separated. Mm-hmm. It's a very complicated so if I'm hearing you correctly, part of the first step of, in helping folks who are in early recovery from chemsex is, is really about educating them and helping them get a sense of what it's going to look like to really create some kind of sustainable recovery so that they feel a little more of a roadmap or a sense of what would be normal or or. Uh, would would be the average kind of um, road towards hopefully abstaining from these types of behaviors. Is, is that correct? That's absolutely correct, yes. And, then, and there's a couple of things going on. One thing I didn't mention is that meth, unlike cocaine, meth is actually neurotoxic. When it lands on those doping receptors, uh, it actually destroys the receptor. And so over time, people are literally creating this functional brain injury that where their dopamine can't be distributed and uh, when you can't get adequate dopamine distribution, you're impulsive, you're depressed, you're anhedonic or can't experience pleasure. And so those pathways do come back, but they take up to two years. And in that time, that, that I believe explains the long extended recovery from meth that's different from other drugs where people have a hard time, there's more relapse, it's just a different animal. And I think educating clients about that and explaining why it's happening because of their brain is, is really important. It sounds super significant, and it's amazing what we know nowadays that we didn't know 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago. And I really hear how not only knowledgeable you are, but how articulate you are in terms of really helping people understand what's, what's happening from a brain chemistry perspective. So um, what a fantastic resource you, you bring to, the, to these folks. My, my final question is this. So let's say somebody makes it through the first two years and somehow they are starting to feel better, but they're still struggling with relationships and with triggers and with loneliness or, or whatever might still be getting in their way. And I'm curious, how would you talk about sex and intimacy or sex and, and meaningful relationships in longer term chemsex recovery? You know, that's such an important topic and it's one that um, isn't talked about enough because it's so difficult to get some abstinence under one's belt. But when people do get there and they do get there, um, uh, it's a really powerful thing. And I've had rooms full of 100 guys and at, at uh, conventions or roundups and where they have 10 or 15 or 20 years of recovery from meth and they describe that and they describe the the grieving of that kind of fantasy hot sex and having an uh, understanding how hollow and empty that is and really starting to learn how to connect with their partner. And I'll tell you, the, the key to that in my mind after this really two-year period of stabilization is to really kind of go into the, um, go back in terms of the, that child's attachment issues, their intimacy, what, what they learned, the trauma. That's where kind of the older issues, I think, have to be unrooted and, and really corrected. And then with this population of gay men, particularly, there's so much shame and kind of multiple stigmatized identities and, and a lot of 
lot of, often a lot of abuse. So those issues about vulnerability and trust um, have to be worked on. But I think the, the early recovery is all about learning how to make real connection, and then really that intimacy piece you're speaking of later is all about keeping it and learning how to really become vulnerable enough to to have an intimate, meaningful relationship with another person, which almost everyone wants. They state that. Well, I, I can't think of a better place to wind down our discussion, David, because I, I couldn't agree more with the fact that connection and, of course, deeper, authentic connection is is such a healing force. And we, we know nowadays that our brain chemistry responds to that and, and helps us you know, feel more, um, more regulated and more able to experience a sense of comfort that comes with relationships that are truly reliable in our, in our lives. I, I really, really appreciate you joining us today, David. You have brought to light something that I don't think it's talked about that often. And I feel like I've learned today and I, I so appreciate you being a part of our conversation. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. We enjoyed our conversation today with David Fawcett, an authority on chemsex. I look forward to sharing more with you in future podcasts.